There's a story of a little girl who loved playing in her mom's jewelry. And one day she decided, without her mother's permission, to wear one of her mother's beautiful necklaces outside to play, to impress her friends. Well, after a while of playing outside with her friends before returning home, the girl noticed that her mother's beautiful necklace was no longer around her neck. So she, in a panic, began to search. And she searched and searched where she had been playing, but she could not find it, and it was getting late. So finally she hung her head and returned home to tell her mother. And upon hearing the news, the mother immediately asked the daughter one question. She said, where were you playing? The girl answered, at the park. And upon hearing that important piece of information, the mother immediately left and was back with the necklace in less than 15 minutes. When she got home, her daughter was shocked that the mom had found the necklace so quickly. She said, Mom, I, I, I can't believe you. You found it. I looked all over for it. How did you find it so quickly? The mother said, because we were not looking for the same thing. You were looking for a necklace you play with in mommy's closet. And I was looking for a $500 necklace that your father gave to me on our 10th wedding anniversary. Here's the point of the story. The right motivation makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? The right motivation makes all the difference. Folks, that's true when it comes to finding an expensive piece of jewelry with sentimental value that's been lost on a playground, and it's true when it comes to our spiritual life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we started a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians, entitled Walking Worthy, and today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we just sort of did an introduction to the book, and we just focused on the first two verses of chapter 1. And today we're going to continue where we left off, and we're going to cover a bigger chunk of Scripture. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14. And in today's passage... Paul begins his wonderful book by giving us great motivation for why we should walk worthy. Like I said a moment ago, the right motivation makes all the difference in the world. And here in this passage, Paul is going to show us that we as believers have great reason for living lives that are sold out for the Lord. He shows us in this passage that we as believers have great motivation for walking worthy for God in this life. Notice how he begins. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Believers, if you're looking for a key verse to carry with you, and to read and reread and study and memorize and meditate upon. This is your verse right here. This is your verse. 
Paul tells us why we as believers should live for God. He gives us great motivation here for walking worthy. He says the reason why God is to be blessed, the reason why he's to be worshipped and praised and followed is because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice the past tense here. This is very important. Paul says, this is something that's a done deal for us. This has happened in the past. Believers, God has already blessed us in Christ with everything we need spiritually. That's what Paul's saying. Do you realize that? Do you really realize that, believers? Do you realize that you have been blessed by God with everything you need spiritually in Christ? Do you? If so, let me ask you this. When's the last time you spent time in prayer simply thanking God for what you do have? We often spend most of our prayer time asking God for things that we don't have rather than thanking Him for things we do have in Christ, don't we? We do. Please don't hear me say you shouldn't bring your request before God. That's not what I'm saying. You should. But I'm simply saying here, it's it's very important for us to be reminded of all the blessings we already have in Christ. Paul says God has blessed us in every way spiritually. He has met every deep-seated spiritual need that we have in Christ. Again, when we talk about blessings in our Christian circles, we often talk about physical things, don't we? We talk about our circumstances. When we get a new house or, or, or a car or when things go our way, we say, God is so good, look at how he's blessing us. And we should recognize these things as blessings from God. It's good to praise Him for those things. But the blessings Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 1, verse 3, are much more meaningful, much more significant. He's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He's not talking about the tangible and the physical blessings that are immediately felt and experienced but often short-lived. He's talking about deeper, much more meaningful and permanent blessings that are ours the moment we turn from our sin and turn our life over to Christ. That's what he's talking about, spiritual blessings. If I were to ask you which do you prefer, which would you prefer, a million dollars in the bank that'll benefit you in time, or $100 in cash that'll benefit you immediately, which would you choose? It's a no-brainer, right? I'm hoping you would choose the money in the bank, right? That's clearly the better choice. Well, in a similar way, Paul in this passage is focusing on the better blessing. He's talking about blessings that are not always seen in the here and now and and not immediately felt and experienced at all times, but blessings that are better by far. 
He's writing to us here, believers, and he's telling us how much God has blessed us spiritually. He's talking about the deep-seated spiritual needs that God has met for us. Paul's saying, I'm reminding you of that. I'm reminding you, you have everything you need in Christ. It's in the bank. Now, let's get specific here. What are these spiritual blessings that Paul makes mention of? Well, he tells us in the rest of this passage. Notice in this passage, Paul makes mention of three ways in which God has blessed us. And notice how he breaks these blessings down. He doesn't simply say that God has blessed us, but he shows us how each member of the Godhead has blessed us. Not just God in general. We believe in a triune God, right? That God exists, one God in three persons. And and what Paul does here is he shows us how each member of the Trinity... Each member of the Godhead has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, why does Paul get so specific here? Remember, we're in chapter 1, in the first section in this book. You remember I explained last week that this book divides nicely, doesn't it? It can be divided into two parts. In the first section, Paul's focus is upon doctrine, what we as believers know. And then in the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, his focus is on practice, what we as believers do, what we know and what we do. And the reason why Paul starts off with what we know is because he knows for us to be faithful in practice, we must first be sound in doctrine. Right thinking leads to right living. So we're in the chapter 1, the first part of the first section of this book, the book of Ephesians, which is why this passage here is so theologically precise and weighty. But remember also, Paul is writing here for the purpose of encouraging and motivating Christians, the Christians of his day, to walk worthy. And he does this by telling them, That not only is there one God who has blessed believers with every spiritual blessing, but he also tells them that there are three persons responsible for blessing believers. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So for the rest of our time here, what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look at each of these three blessings from each member of the Trinity each member of the Godhead. Let's first look at the way the Father has blessed us. Notice, number one, the Father has selected us. The Father has selected us. One reason we should be motivated to walk worthy for God is because God has selected us. He has chosen us. Look at verses 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here's the first way God has blessed us. The Father has blessed us by selecting us, by choosing us. The first blessing we have here as believers that's in the bank that should motivate us to walk worthy is the blessing of election. Believers, we have been elected. 
We have been chosen. The Father has chosen us. Now, before you tune me out, some of you, hear me out, okay? Before you tune me out, let me say my piece. Hear me out. Because I know this upsets some folks when you begin to talk about this. But we have to deal with it. It's what's next in the text. It's why I love preaching through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because you have to focus on it. I can't just skip over this, can I? No. I've got to deal with it, so let's deal with it. Let's take a closer look here at what Paul says about election. Notice first the timetable here. When did the Father choose us? Middle of verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. Not just before we were born. Not just before, you know, a few weeks before we were conceived, but before anything was conceived. Before there was time. Before anything was created, we were chosen. Paul says it as clear as day here. He says God chose us before the foundation of the world. Pretty clear, right? And the point Paul's making here is this. We didn't catch God's eye. You may think you're special like that to draw God's gaze away from somebody else, but it's just not the case. It's not like this. God didn't say, oh my goodness, look at Graham. He's so special, I'm just going to forget about this guy. I'm, I'm getting this guy, you know? Folks, it doesn't work like that. Scripture clearly teaches there is, I'm going to hurt your feelings here, okay? But Scripture clearly teaches there is nothing about you that makes you any more special than anyone else. There is nothing about you make, that makes you more qualified to be a child of God than anyone else. No conditions that one possesses over another. That's Paul's point here. God's choosing you is not because of you and because of the qualities that you possess but rather it's conditioned on God and his purposes. Scripture clearly teaches that. Paul's making the point here, God chose you believers based upon his purposes in redemption, not based upon the qualities you possess. Let me repeat that. Paul makes the point as clear as day here that God chose you based upon his purposes purposes in redemption and not based upon the qualities you possess that's why paul says god chose you before the foundation of the world he chose you in eternity past long before you were a thought in anyone's head long before you were a speck on the map notice he also used the word predestined here he uses it twice paul's being hard on me this morning he uses it twice, in verse 5 and in verse 11. Now, what does that word mean? Well, it's not hard to figure out. You just got to break it down. The word destined refers to destination or destiny. And the word pre is the prefix which means before, which means our destiny, our destination, our end was determined beforehand. It was predetermined, so used here Paul is saying God chose us, he predestined us, he decided our end beforehand. Paul says God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of our will, his will. Now some of you have a problem with that, problem with the doctrine of election and predestination. There's nothing I can do about it. 
You got to take that up with God. Because that's what he teaches here. And folks, something we've learned time and time again in here is that when our thinking is out of line with what's found in here, what needs to change, us or the Bible? Now again, before you tune me out or walk out, hear me out, okay? Hear me out. Let me then ask you this. Does that then mean, because God chose us and predestined us for adoption, that we're not at fault? That we're not to blame? No. You know what we also learn in this book, time and time again, is that though God is sovereign, man is responsible. Now, how all that exactly works, I don't know, neither do you, and don't believe anyone who tells you that they do because they don't. They don't. There are many people who try to explain the mysterious things of God, like the Trinity. Oh, it's just like an egg. Really? No. There's nothing we can point to in this life and say, this is exactly the way the Trinity is. It's the otherness of God. He's just other than us. He's just beyond us. He doesn't go against our reasoning, but he does go beyond our reasoning. That's the way it goes with the Trinity. That's the way it goes with Jesus being fully God, fully man. Some people are like, well, at times Jesus was not God and he was man, and other times he was God. And he was. No. It goes beyond reason. We can't wrap our little puny brains around that. It's how big God is. Just allow your head to hurt a little bit when you think about God. That's a good thing. That'll lead you to worship. But listen, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, it's a mystery. It is. And those who try and use human logic and earthly illustrations to explain it, you know what they end up doing? They end up explaining God in a false and heretical way. Now, we don't want to do that, do we? So let's just be safe and say, hey, God's beyond us. It's a mystery how this works. But listen, though these doctrines are a mystery, they're both clearly taught in the scriptures, and we have to affirm both. We do. We do. They're just some of those secret things that belong to the Lord, as it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Now, many of you know, when we talk about the doctrine of election and predestination, this tends to upset some, and it excites others. Some get defensive, and they say, I don't want to hear about predestination and election. I don't believe in that. I don't want to spend time thinking on that, even though Paul spends time focusing on it here in Ephesians 1. And there are others who get excited about it. They're like, yeah, you know. I call those people, you know, we refer to them as being in the cage stage. Somebody just needs to put them in a cage somewhere. Forget about them. But they're, you know, they're on fire. They want to debate it in every Bible study. Yeah, let's get in here. Let's debate election, you know. Many of us, when we think about the doctrines of election predestination, we think controversy and debate. But let me ask you this. Do you think that's Paul's intent here? Do you think that's the reason Paul's writing this here? Do you? Do you think... Paul is writing a letter to the Christians of his day hoping to stir the pot and spark up a heated and controversial debate. No. Paul is writing here to encourage us and to motivate us and to move us to live for God. So if you're reading this and this angers you, or if this makes you want to go pick a fight with somebody, you're missing the point Paul's making by a country mile. 
Paul is saying, I want you to be encouraged by this truth. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that before you were anything to anybody, you were loved and favored by God. Jeremiah understood this, did he not? Remember what he said in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5? Listen to this. He said, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before I consecrated you, before I set you apart for my purposes, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah knew and was encouraged by the fact that before he was anything to anybody, he was loved and favored by God. And Paul tells us this, Christians... He tells the Christians of his day, and he tells us, his greater Christian audience, the same is true for you guys. Wow. That doesn't motivate you to walk worthy. I don't know what will. I want to offer you a challenge this week. If this verse and these teachings are difficult for you to handle, they make you uneasy, if they they trouble you, Or maybe you embrace this teaching and you think, hey, because God's in control, I don't have to do anything. Maybe you think, you know, God's going to save whomever he chooses, so I'm just going to sit back and relax and let him do his thing. Maybe that's your mentality. If that's what you take this text to mean, let me tell you, you're way off as well. Remember in Romans, Paul clearly states that saving faith comes through hearing the word of God. And he also says that for people to hear the word, they must have someone share the word with them. Believers, we're called to share the gospel with the unbelieving world. And we're told in God's word that when the people of God share the word of God through the power of the spirit of God, that is the means by which people come to saving faith and we're also told those who do not come to saving faith those who reject that message are held personally responsible for their unbelief that's what scripture teaches so i want to offer you a challenge this week if you fall into one of these camps if this text troubles you or maybe it moves you to become apathetic toward the work god has called you to do and toward those without christ I want to encourage you to spend some time this week rereading and meditating on this text and approach it with this mentality that Paul is writing to you to encourage you and to motivate you to live for God. And, and I, I, I pray that as you study this text, folks, that you would be encouraged by God's unmerited and undeserved favor that he has shown to you before the foundation of the world, before you were anything to anyone. And I pray that that moves you to walk worthy for him. I pray that that moves you to be holy, as Paul says at the end of verse 4. We've been chosen to be holy, to be set apart, and to be blameless. And that word means pure, like Jesus. Pray this doctrine here of God selecting you. It moves you to be holy, to be set apart, and to be pure, like Jesus Now let's talk about the sun. Notice here, Paul tells us the sun has sacrificed for us. The father has selected us. The son has sacrificed for us. Look at verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's stop there for a minute. First of all, who's the him here in verse seven? It's Jesus, right? This is a reference back to verse 6, where Christ is mentioned. 
Paul says here, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, the word redemption here is a very important term. It's used a lot. It's a slave term. Do you know that? It is. Paul is saying, we were, I was, we all were slaves to our own sinfulness. We were enslaved in sin, but God did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus. Jesus came, accomplished a great work for us, and purchased us. He bought us back. He redeemed us. He gave us an opportunity to be made right with God again so that we're no longer slaves but free in him. How did he do this? How did he free us from sin? Middle of verse 7, through his blood. Jesus gave his life up. He died as a ransom, as a payment for ours. He gave his life as payment for ours so that we could be set free. Christ died a death. He didn't have to die. He took the punishment reserved for us. He endured God's wrath for us so that we who are guilty of sin and deserving of death might be saved. Notice Paul also says here, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Because of the work that Christ accomplished at Calvary, We who are guilty and deserving of eternal punishment are able to be forgiven. Now, how can that happen? How can a just God who cannot tolerate sin, who must punish sin, then forgive sinful people like you and me and remain just? How does that work? Paul answered that question in Romans 3, didn't he? By offering up his holy and righteous and sinless son in our place. It's not anything we did, Paul says. It's according to the riches of God's grace. And folks, again, if that doesn't move you to walk worthy, if that doesn't motivate you to live for God, I don't know what will. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verse 9, we have an important word that's used here. It's the word mystery. It's another key word in the book of Ephesians. It's used seven times. And you know what that word means, mystery? It refers to something that at one time was hidden but has now been made clear. And Paul's point here in using this word is he's emphasizing the fact that there was a time when we were in the dark on what God was up to in his world. We were. There was a a time when people were not aware of the redemptive work that God was doing and was going to do through Christ. That's why when Paul, whenever he went to a major city, he would go to the synagogues first, and he would take their scriptures, and he'd be like, look, here's what you guys missed. That's Jesus. That's talking about Jesus there. He would make these things clear. He He would show them that what was in the Old Testament concealed was now in 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 Christ revealed. That's what he was showing. Believers, do you realize the mystery has been made known to you? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? You've been given ears to hear, eyes to see. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him for salvation, God's redemptive work has been made clear to you. This is one of the many ways that we're blessed, believers. If you're in Christ... You have come to know the mystery of God's will. How awesome is that? For those of you in Christ, you now know 
that God has been at work throughout human history restoring a broken world and redeeming a broken people through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus. Believers, you know that. This mystery has been made known to you. And again, that should motivate you. That should move you to walk worthy. Now, what does it look like for us to walk worthy in light of what the son has done for us? God's son, Jesus. What does that look like? Paul tells us, look at verse 11 through 12. He says, in him... In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according according to the uh, purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Focus on that last phrase here. Why did God do this? Why did he redeem us through the death of his son? Verse 12. He did it so that we might be to the praise of his glory. I made mention of this a while back, but it needs to be mentioned again and again in here. God has selfish reasons for redeeming us. Did you know that? He does. Though we benefit from salvation, God has ultimately saved us for himself and for his glory. And Paul makes that clear here more than once in this passage. He says in verse 6, God chose us, God saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. Into verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Into verse 14, Paul says, to the praise of his glory. Paul makes it crystal clear here. We have been saved by God for God. We've been saved by God so that we will in turn worship him and bring glory to him. Like we sing on occasion in here, you and I, we were made for what? Worship. But not only that, we were saved for worship. We were saved for God to worship him, to bring glory to him, to love and to serve him. Though we benefit from God saving us, the ultimate reason he has saved us is so that we would in turn praise him and bring glory to his name that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity it is folks our end is worship god made us for this reason he saved us for this reason there's one final blessing in this passage not only has the father selected us and the son sacrificed for us but paul also tells us the spirit has sealed us the holy spirit has sealed us look at verse 13 and 14 In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says here, believers, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel, and when you responded to this message, when you believed upon it, when you trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you were sealed. The moment you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be sealed. That word simply means to be made secure, locked up tightly. When we trust in Christ alone for salvation, the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. He secures us in Him. He seals us in Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says, he also says here, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Though Paul clearly states here 
in Ephesians 1.3 that we've already been blessed in Christ, right? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? But though it's ours in the bank, we have yet to experience all the benefits that are ours in Him. But we will one day. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that. There's coming a day when we who are trusting in Christ will be made complete in Him. There's coming a day when we're going to be like Him, when we see Him as He is. There's coming a day when the consequences of living in a fallen, sin-stained world are going to be undone. There's coming a day when not only us, but the world in which we live will be made right again. And there will be no more suffering or sickness or pain or death. And the fact that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we will one day experience all these benefits when Christ returns. I like the way Paul talks about it. He refers to it as our inheritance. You may not have much of an inheritance in the here and now, but believers, let me tell you, you've got a lavish inheritance in the then and there. You do. Remember I told you last week, that the book of Ephesians is often referred to many as the treasure house of the Bible. I love that. It's a book of riches. And that's what Paul alludes to here. There is an inheritance for us believers, and the great thing about our future inheritance is this. Hear me out here. It's guaranteed. It cannot be squandered. It can never be lost. Those who have earthly riches and inheritances, at times they squander them. They lose them, not true, of our spiritual riches in heavenly places. They are kept by God, and they are guaranteed to us. Therefore, we can have confidence, can't we? We can have confidence as believers, no matter what we face in this life, no matter the trials, no matter the difficulties, no matter what we come up against in this life, our future inheritance, our spiritual blessings in heavenly places, they are ours for the taking. They are reserved for us. They are kept by God. They're guaranteed by His Spirit and one day will fully be experienced and and received and experienced by us. You can bank on that. Maybe you're here this morning. You don't have this confidence. Maybe you don't have a hope that, hope at all, but definitely a hope beyond this life. A hope that transcends your current circumstances because this is not true of you you've yet to be sealed with the spirit but you would like to be maybe you're here this morning and 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 you want the kind of of confidence that only god can give through his son and through his holy spirit but you don't know how to attain it well i got good news for you paul tells us in this passage of scripture how we can in verse 13 he tells us here to attain it We must hear and believe the gospel. That's what Paul says. Folks, the gospel is simply this. The gospel is the work God has done for us through his son Jesus. The gospel tells us that we have sinned and we've fallen short of God. We've missed the mark by a country mile and then some. We failed to measure up. But though that's the case, the gospel also tells us that God has done something about it. 
He has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for us, and he has done it through his son, the Lord Jesus. Though we've failed God, though we've fallen short, though we have failed to measure up, though we've turned away from him, and there's no amount of work that we can do to get back. God has accomplished this work. He's done it for us. He's made salvation available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And through him, through Christ, listen, you can be forgiven of your sin. You can enter into a right relationship with the living God. This has been made available to you through Christ But what you must do in return is this. Get this. You must understand what God has done for you in Christ. And you must believe it and get this. You must personally receive it. You must personally receive it for yourself. Folks, all the blessings I've been talking about this morning, all of the blessings that motivate us as believers to walk worthy can be yours in Christ this morning. If you would... Turn from your sins and personally trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you have not, I pray you'd make that decision before we leave here today. Would you pray with me?